Welcome to another Books and Culture podcast with Books and Culture's editor, John Wilson. I'm Stan Guthrie, and today, John, we're looking at a new book by Sky Jatani called Futureville. What's it all about? Well, you get a clue from the subtitle, Stan, which is Discover Your Purpose for Today by Reimagining Tomorrow. But before I get into the book, I occasionally mention there are people who are fastidious about possible conflicts of interest and that sort of thing. And I usually ride roughshod over those, but I always try to let people know that <laughs> okay. I'm doing that. Full disclosure. Um, yeah. And so Sky and I work for the same company. Alas, we almost never see each other. The last time I really enjoyed it, and I think he did too, we had a really good conversation in September. We were both going to the gathering, and after our plane landed in Arizona, we took a shuttle to the hotel together. So that's probably the longest conversation that we've had in five years. Wow. But Sky has written a wonderful book. The only problem with it is that it's too sane and too wise. If it said even just a few really nutty, controversial things, it would get a lot more attention. He has a wonderful perspective on the subject, and he says, I think maybe even in the first sentence of the book, that this isn't so much a book about the future as it is about the present, but it's built on the premise that how we think about the future shapes the choices that we make now. Not so long ago, I wrote a book about Bible prophecy, and I talked about how our view of the future shapes how we're to live for Christ today. I read that book, and I thought of your book while I was reading Sky's book. Tell me his take on it. Well, he traces two ways of thinking about the future that have been somewhat common among Christians, and particularly American evangelicals over the last century or so. He says that while they both have elements of truth, they end up giving us a distorted perspective, which then has some bad consequences for how we're making our choices now. One of them he calls evolution. What he means by that is the idea that there's a kind of gradual progress that we can count on and that perhaps, among other things, exaggerates our ability to make change of a certain kind, maybe political change or some other mm -hmm. kind of change that's going to make things the way they should be. And then the other pole is what he calls evacuation. That's the idea that we're in a culture that is obviously really sick and therefore we need to escape from it as much as possible to try to keep ourselves somewhat unsullied. And he quotes that famous comment by Robert Bork about, you know, perhaps the only hope for our society is for islands of decency, you know. And mm. so the idea that would take in, for instance, the separatist strains of fundamentalism and various other groups that have gone in that direction. Where does he stand on the whole anti-right thing of, you know, kind of we're working towards the kingdom, we're showing signs of it now, those kinds, of, does that factor into this book? It's informed by scripture and theology and so on, but it's not intended to wade into in-depth theological debate. But yes, it's very compatible with that. And I'll come back to that in a minute. I wanted to say one thing about the book 
that makes it particularly compelling, and that is that the whole book is framed by two deaths. The first, right near the beginning, is the death of a very young brother of his who drowned in a pool in their backyard. And he doesn't say much about that at all, except that it was a tremendous jolt for the family, and it took many years. In one sense, you never really get over it. But he talks about how not long before that, that his parents had taken the family to Disney World and how he was so enthused with the the vision of Tomorrowland and, and how after this just seemingly wholly gratuitous death, the future just didn't look the same to him and how that caused him to become cynical, as he puts it, before some of his peers did. He said they caught up with him in you know, high <laughs> yeah. school. And all that is very restrained. He relates what I just said, but not in many more words than I've used. And I think it's more powerful because he doesn't go on about it at great length. He lets the reality of it speak for itself. And then near the end of the book, he talks about, I think he says about eight years ago, he and his wife had a son, Isaac, who was born prematurely and struggled in his whole very short life and finally died. And there again, he's very restrained. There's a little bit more about that than there is about the first death. But he also talks about the way that the hope that he has, again, it's not something that you can just say, oh, well, I know I'm going to see him again. Everything is okay and move on. It's not that simple. But the hope that he and his wife share with you and me and other fellow believers sustained him and allowed him to see that much differently than he would if he didn't have that conviction. You mentioned a moment ago that you were going to get back to Tom Wright. Not so much to Tom Wright, but I think getting back to your question. All right. And this is one thing that if if Sky and I end up on a shuttle again um, (laughs) (laughs) sometime, I'd love to talk with him a little about this. And this is right near the end of the book, but it's bringing together something that runs through the whole book. Right at the beginning of the book, he talks about the World's Fair in 1939 and the Trilon and the Perisphere, these wonderful Mm -hmm. futuristic structures and how they eventually, after a couple of years, were taken down and how somebody who lived near there said, oh, it was really hard because it seemed like Mm -hmm. they were going to be there forever. Mm -hmm. And he said it had to disappear. As long as it remained, people would be content visiting the future rather than creating it. So you you already sense the affinity with Wright and, and others. They would accept its facsimile of tomorrow while the real thing passed them by. Hmm. This is why, if they are to fill their purposes, all visions must dim to make space for a new reality to emerge. This explains why Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus came and inaugurated his kingdom of order, beauty, and abundance. He gave us a ravishing vision of the world we're born, but he ascended to the Father so that the Holy Spirit could come and empower those who believe to, quote, do the works that I do and greater works than these. By leaving and giving us his Spirit, Jesus ensured that Futureville would be more than a vision through his people, reborn by the power of his resurrection, filled with his Spirit and called to different works, Futureville would become a reality. Well, one way to 
think about the meaning of that passage and the line of argument that leads up to it would be to think of a certain strain of Russian orthodoxy that takes the notion of theosis, of the divinization of those who follow Christ. There was a particular strain of that thought in the early 20th century that rather than just thinking of this in terms of the individual, thought of it in cosmic terms. They were cosmists. That, that was the name of this movement. And it included some rather eccentric Eastern Orthodox thinkers. But their idea was that in some way the whole earth would be transformed in this process. Now, just like N.T. Wright, he's not saying exactly the same thing. It could be extended in that direction. I'm not sure anything like that is going to happen. I think most of us would agree that I don't think we know where we are in terms of the long history. There's an assumption often unstated, even among people who don't talk about the end times, that we're not going to go on for too much longer. You know, history Mm -hmm. is about played out. I don't think we know that at all. You know, history could be much, much vaster than we imagine. And I think there has to be a humility in how we think of this. And so to the extent that such thinking could possibly give warrant to a kind of utopian strain, I don't think it would be constructive, but I don't think that's really what Sky has in mind. As I say, I just found his book marvelously sane and wise, and I highly recommend it. Thank you, John.